This morning we are going to be um, looking at perhaps the most famous passage in all the New Testament on marriage, perhaps even of the whole Bible. Um, this is not me looking at you who are couples and saying they need to really have a sermon on marriage. This is simply where we find ourselves in our study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Simply all it is. And so we are going to spend time thinking about marriage uh, and listening to what God's Word says to us about our marriages. Now, I, I, I want to, just before we jump in and study God's Word, I do want to make some preliminary comments because, um, well, I just need to make preliminary comments. Okay. The first thing I want to say about this morning's message is that there is no way that I could address everything about marriage this morning. There's just no way. And I know that, that many of you have questions and different situations and scenarios and you find yourself in different places in your life, whether you're divorced, you're going to be married, whether you're married in a happy marriage. And I cannot address every little nuance and every little nook and cranny of that. And so I just I, I say that to you to say, hey, hopefully what this does is spark some interest uh, for you to study and to learn and to look into what it looks like to be married and what all of those things. And, and I just want to mention to you one book that, that I have found very beneficial to me and, and, and my understanding of marriage. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. Meaning of Marriage. So if this is something you want to continue to study and learn more about, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a great book called The Meaning for Marriage. In fact, it's so popular that Justin Bieber and his new wife were reading it, okay? <laughs> TMZ caught him with that book in his hand. So, hey, I, no, I, I, all truth, it's a great book. So if you want to study it more, check it out. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer. <laughs> I love it. It's great. All right, that's the first thing. Second thing that I think is really important that we understand is that this passage assumes a Christian marriage. That both the husband and the wife have submitted their lives to Christ. And that out of that submission, they submit to one another. If we don't come to this text with this assumption, here's the result. Chaos. Destruction. And a crucifixion that doesn't lead to life. This is assumption. Now, I would say, if you find yourself in a marriage with an unbeliever, whatever way, or both spouses are unbelievers, I think there is things that you can learn from this. But if you practice this, as one pastor said in his sermon, it's a sneaky way to get yourself killed. Marriage is hard. And we need some preliminary thoughts. And one of the thoughts that we have for this particular text is that Paul assumes that both husband and wife are Christians. That's the second one. Third, to those of you who are single, dating, divorced, or engaged, do not tune out. In fact, it is to your benefit that you listen closely. While you might not be able to apply all of these truths to your current and immediate context, there are certainly things that you can pull from this. For example, if you're not dating anybody, if you're single, but you're looking, one of the things that you can look is for characteristics of someone you would marry. So for example, girls, a single girls, are you looking for a man who has submitted his life to Jesus. This is probably one of the most important things as you look to date a guy. Does he love Jesus? 
And will he follow what Jesus says? It's so vitally important. And the same with men. So there's a lot we can learn. Fourth, and this is the one I want to just really just end on. This sermon will offend. This sermon will challenge us. And because of that, I have sought to be very careful with my words. And it is my hope that in being careful with my words that the offense is not from me, but from the text. And let me just say, I am an open door when it comes to if the words you find offensive are from me, please find me and seek clarity on what I said. I want the text to be offensive if it is offensive. I don't want my words to be offensive. And a lot of pastors have used this to be incredibly offensive. And I think it's offensive to who we are as people as well as to God. But God's Word can be offensive. And I want God's Word to be offensive, not my words. So if there is any miscommunication, please seek me. And it is my hope not only that I will apologize, but that I will clarify. Alright, with that being said, let us turn our attention to God's Word. In particular, on what God's Word says to us about marriage. Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 23. Uh, I'm actually, I I put 21 in there initially, but I'm just going to jump to 22. Okay? Verse 22, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want you to imagine a place. Imagine a place without cell phones with maps. Alright? Go with me to this imaginary world. A world we never have to go back to. I'm going to create this hypothetical situation. Your work has called you to Mena, Arkansas. Why? I don't know. And so on your way to Mena, or before you head to Mena, you... Consult some maps. Maybe consult some people who've been to Mina before. And you, you kind of flesh it out in your mind. And then you set out to Mina for your job. Initially, your journey is great. I mean, you're just on the interstate. You, you know that you just got to go through Hot Springs. And most of us know Hot Springs is easy to get to. And during this time, you're listening to music. You even put the window down and you know, put your hand out and do the up and down thing. It's just great. Mena, Arkansas, here we come. When you get to Hot Springs, you know you hit the 270 bypass and you go on the south side of the town. That's what everyone's told you. That's what the maps told you. Easy peasy. 
You get off the bypass and remain on 270 until you hit Highway 88. And once you hit Highway 88, it's west to Mina. Boom. Done. This is going to be great. You've consulted. You've seen a map. And onward to Mina. But while you're on Highway 270, just outside of Hot Springs, an unexpected storm arises. It comes out of nowhere, but it's not a storm that you haven't seen before. Some strong winds, rain, lightning, thunder... And that's really it. But as soon as the storm passes, the road becomes to clear, and you see something unexpected. Trees on the road. You think, oh, no big deal. I'll just go around the trees, remaining on 270 until I hit Highway 88. But then you realize there's a lot of trees down the road, and that the road itself is blocked. And now you don't know where to go. How in the world... Do you get to Mena, Arkansas now? You knew the way to go. You consulted with some of your friends how to get there, but you don't know how to backtrack. You don't have a map on your phone. You forgot to pack a map in your car, and now you're stuck. I I mentioned this story, and it's silly. I realize this. But I think marriage can feel a lot like this scenario. You know, it starts off great. You get the hand out the window. you're, You're feeling it really good. Husband and wife... This is what we call the honeymoon stage. I mean, honeymoon stage is a great place. Your wife is perfect and beautiful. There's nothing wrong. Your husband is perfect and beautiful. Nothing is wrong. You're jamming, having a good time. You think you know where you're going. And then, the honeymoon's over. And it feels like the trees, choom, 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 are all on the road. And you're left going, Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. What, the books told us that this was going to be easy. This books, where do we go? How do we get there? How do we do this marriage thing? A lot of us can find ourselves in this place. And of course, we're too proud to ask for help in the midst of this. Just like I would be too proud to ask for directions to get to Mena, Arkansas if I found myself in that question. I would probably just try to figure my way out and make a mess of it. And this is often how we do it in the midst of our marriages. When it gets tough. We go at it alone. We don't ask for help. One of the things I love about Ephesians 5 is while it doesn't address every nook and cranny, every situation that we can find ourselves in marriage, it does give us direction on what a godly marriage looks like. If we're using the imagery of getting to Mena, Arkansas, at the very least, it can tell us, here's how you get to Mena. And this morning, I want to draw our attention to God's Word that we might indeed seek a godly marriage. Or at least have an understanding of what God wants for our marriage. But we must, we must not try to go at it alone. If we go at it alone, we'll never get there. So, I want to pull out three different sets of direction that Paul gives to us for our marriage. Three directions. The first set of directions are directions for the wife. And I want you to listen to Paul commends a few different directions for the wives. In fact, I think he commends two different ones. Look at verse 22, what Paul says to wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then lastly, at the end of verse 33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. I mean, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, the directions feel very offensive. But let us not jump to the conclusions that we can think of what it means to be submissive. And let us consider what Paul says before thinking that this is what Paul means. If It is my opinion that, honestly, if, if this was written to our modern ears, Paul would say something like this, Wives, entrust yourself to the leadership and love of your husband and encourage them in the midst of this calling. Wives, entrust yourself to the leadership and love of your husband and respect them in the midst of their calling. The word submit comes from the Greek word hypotasomenoi. This verb was commonly used of ordered relationships in a social setting. A great example of this would be warriors submitting to their commander. In this particular case, Paul says that wives are to submit to the husband because the husband is the head of the wife. Now here, Paul uses a body metaphor, the head. And he uses this metaphor, commonly used in this day, to determine the leader. This does not mean that the husband is greater. This doesn't mean that the husband has more worth and significance. It just means social structuring. That God, in His Word, has commanded that the man, the husband, not the man, the husband, lead the family. This is not talking about social society. This is talking about a husband and a wife. This is not saying that women, you have to obey men and submit to all men. This is not what it is saying. It is saying a wife, submit to a husband. Of course, this still can be offensive to our culture in our day and age to say, entrust yourself to the leadership of your husband. But I want to speak a little bit more about this. I want to speak to the type of leadership wives are called to submit to. Look with me. Look at what Paul says to husbands, and we'll get into this in detail. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The type of leadership that Paul calls wives to submit to is a self-sacrificing leadership. It is a leadership that seeks the wife's good over the, man, the husband's good. This is a different kind of leadership than the authoritarian leadership that many have envisioned this to be. It is a leadership modeled after Christ Himself. But I want you to lastly to see what Paul directs wives to do, and that is that they respect their husbands as leaders. Many wives understand, and many people understand, that those we love most dearly have the power to crush with their words or with their actions. Wives especially, I want you to know this, have the power with their words and their actions to emasculate a man. And Paul reminds us, don't do this. Respect your husbands, even if he's a lame duck leader. The evangelist E.V. Hill told this story at his wife's funeral to illustrate how she had entrusted herself to his leadership, but at the same time had a deep respect for him. The story he tells goes something like this. Six months into their marriage, he'd come home from a long day's work. When he'd entered their home, 
He saw that his wife had lit candles all through the house. And he's funny when he says this. He said to his wife, What meaneth thou this? He's a minister. So he, he, she replied, Well, we've been married now for six months. I just thought we would have a candlelit supper. He says, That sounded groovy to me. But then he says this. She forgot to put some candles in the bathroom. And when he went into his bathroom to wash his hands and his face to prepare for supper, he tried to cut the lights on. And he realized the lights aren't on. Then he went to the bedroom, tried to cut the lights on in the bedroom. And they didn't come on. And so he goes back to his wife and he says, Baby, did they cut the lights off? And at that she began to cry. And she looked at him and said, Baby, you work so hard and we, we are trying, but it's rough right now. And I didn't have enough money to pay the bill and I didn't want you to know about it. So I thought we would eat by candlelight. Evie Hill goes on to say this in response to this story. He says, she could have crushed me at that moment. See, she grew up in a wealthy home. And she could have said to him, I grew up the daughter of Dr. Carruthers and we never had our lights cut off. But she didn't. She could have said, I could have been married to the son of the President of Chile and she could have. And in Chile, our lights would not have been cut off. She could have broken my spirit, E.V. Hill said. But instead, she said, tonight, let's eat by candlelight. Wives, are you entrusting yourself to your husband's leadership and love? And do you respect him? Do you champion his efforts to lead even if they are small and seemingly inconsequential? Do you encourage him when you see how he tries to love even if he doesn't quite match your love language? Do you talk badly about him with your friends without even telling him the way that he's failing you? Do you undermine his passivity seeking to try to take control of him rather than confronting the things that he is doing? Paul reminds the wise, entrust yourself to the leadership and love of your husband and respect them in the God-given calling of their life. Now, I would fail as my job as a pastor if I failed to address one important question to this, and that is this. Is there a time when wives would refuse or should refuse to submit to their husbands? And the answer to that is, of course, there is. I want to give three ways in which wives, you should refuse to submit to your husband's leadership. Three just simple ways, and there's certainly more. But the first is this. You should refuse your husband's leadership if he violates a biblical principle. This can be as simple as this. Your husband comes to you and says, let's go to the lake for the summer. And not mindful of being to church. Even if you want to go, you refuse that leadership. Now that might not call in the elders, call in friends, this is a big deal. It could be something simple as, no, we need to go to church. You refuse his leadership. But it can be as severe as this. Your husband is having an affair. You refuse his leadership if he breaks the very principle of marriage that God has given to us. You refuse that. 
And in that case, you do get other people involved, especially your church. Because the church is something you will need in that. And Lord willing, the church will come to your side and protect you and help you deal with a husband who's having an affair. So you refuse your husband's leadership if he violates a biblical principle. Secondly, you refuse his leadership if he compromises the care, the nurture, and protection of the children. You refuse his leadership. He is called the head of the family, but if he shows himself to to be a detriment to his family, you get your kids out of there. You get them out of there. And you don't listen to what he says. You refuse his leadership. And lastly, you refuse his leadership if he ever subjects you to any physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. If this is the case, I want to stress, call the police. Call your church. Use the proper methods to protect you. But you refuse his leadership if he ever does any of these things. Of course, there's sliding scales. But you refuse his leadership if he breaks these three principles. Alright, so that's the directions to the wives. Let's transition to Paul's direction for the husbands. The direction Paul gives to the husbands are twofold. First, the husbands are directed in verse 23 to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. This is simply saying that the husband is the leader of the family. But then we are reminded of the second direction Paul gives the husbands in verse 25 when he says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Christ did this, He says in verse 26, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, the husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of His body. Two simple directions that Paul gives husbands. To lead and to love. And I want to combine these words and simply say, Paul commands directs husbands to lovingly lead. What does it mean to lovingly lead, husbands? First, I think to lovingly lead means committing. It means to commit. There has never been a good leader in this world who hasn't committed themselves to the very thing that they've been called to. Not a CEO, not a general, or a husband. And indeed, as loving head, the husband is to commit to his bride, his wife. Of course, this is off the example of Jesus, who is the example to husbands to love in a committed way. This is what makes sense of what we will see in verse 32, that, a, that, that they are to leave mother and father and hold fast to their wife. This is vow language. This is covenant language. We even say that marriage is a covenant. And we see that Jesus has made covenant with His church. He's committed Himself to His church. And so men, we commit ourselves to our brides. That we will be for them. And only them. That they will be our prized possession. And only them. So as a loving head, husbands, we make a commitment to be with our bride. In sickness and in health. And plenty and in want. To lovingly lead means to commit. 
Secondly, to lovingly lead means to initiate. Husbands don't wait for the wife to pursue them, but rather they pursue their wife without prompting. Jesus did not wait for the church to turn to Him. He initiated the relationship first by putting on flesh and blood and pursuing the bride, His church. He pursued the church before the church pursued Him. He pursued the church when it was going after other lovers and was actually rejecting Him. And so as husbands are called to love their wives, they are to love their wives in initiating with their wives. Romantically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, without prompting. They are to study their wives to see what causes her to respond to His love. They are to learn her nuances, her tics, and to woo her to Himself. If this means buying flowers once a week, then buy flowers. If this means initiating a babysitter to go on a date, then it means that. This means that husbands are to put down their phones and to pursue their wives, asking them, how was your day? Not dealing with just simple, trivial, it was fine. But to pursue and to initiate, no, no, no. How was your day? What was it like? Did you get hurt? Did you have fun? What was it like? Husbands are to initiate real conversation and real love. And this certainly means that they are to have conviction. We won't initiate if we don't have conviction about where we're going and why we're going somewhere. And so husbands, we need to have conviction if we're going to initiate. A pastor friend of mine said that he has had way too many women come into his office pleading for the pastor to intervene on the behalf of the family so that, that she can send her kids to the Christian school. And oftentimes it's the mother saying, please get my kids into the Christian school while the father is just sitting there passively. Let this not be said of us. Let us initiate. For initiating is a beautiful example of lovingly leading. So, husbands, we are to lovingly lead by committing and initiating. And we are to lovingly lead by sacrificing. Sacrificing is ultimately what Paul is saying that Christ did for His church. He laid down His life for His bride. He gave His life for His bride. He sought not His own good. He sought the good of His own bride, even at the cost of His life, so that He might cleanse her and present her with splendor so that she would be holy and blameless. Christ wanted what was best for His bride. And He brought what was best for His bride in laying down His life in her place. So husbands, we are to sacrifice our lives for our bride. And let me tell you, this can look so many different ways. There's so many different ways in which we can see this based off of personalities of the husband and the wife. But it is the husband's calling to lay down his life for his bride. So here's an example. How can you, husbands, lead your bride to the true lover of her soul? What can you lay down, whether it be your golf game, whether it be your computer games, whether it be your television, what can you do that enables her to meet with the true lover of her soul, Jesus Christ? What can you do? What can you lay down? 
How can you take the kids so that she can go on a retreat? So that she can go connect with her Christian friends? So that she can meet with Jesus? What can you do? What can you sacrifice? There's so many beautiful ways that we can do this. But the husband is called to lay down his life for the good of his wife. How can you do this emotionally? I think we can say that we can maybe spend a few more dollars on our bride. Maybe take her to Arthur's rather than Corky's. I mean, <laughs> like, spend some money on her. Go to Tipton Hearst, not Kroger, okay? Like, there's some ways and you could sacrifice. Like, those are silly, trivial ways. Give her the remote <laughs> at night. I mean, <laughs> see, the husband's called to sacrifice his life for his bride, to lovingly lead. Uh, the Dr. Richard Selzer wrote in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, of this beautiful encounter he had in the post-op room with a husband and a wife. Selzer had just operated on the wife's jaw to remove a tumor, and during this procedure, he had to sever one of her facial nerves to remove part of it. The result of this procedure was that it left her mouth palsy, and according to Selzer, clownish. As Selzer stood by her bedside following the surgery, the woman looked to him and said, Will it always be like this? And he said, It will. I had to sever the, the nerve. It will always be like that. Upon hearing this, she became silent and certainly sad. But the husband, Selzer writes, was standing right there. And he says this, I like it. It's kind of cute. <laughs> and then Selzer writes, he unmindfully bends to kiss her crooked mouth and twists his own lips to accommodate hers to show her that the kiss still works. This husband demonstrated a loving leadership to his wife. He was committed to her. He initiated with her even though she had a clownish mouth. And he sacrificed for her twisting his mouth to meet hers and to know that she is loved, even in her palsy and clownish state. Last but not least, I think there's one more group to direct our attention, and that is to all of us. We've looked at the direction Paul gives for the wives, the direction Paul gives to the husbands. Now it is the direction for us all. There is a theme that runs throughout our entire passage this morning, and it is certainly something I've already alluded to, but it is the theme of Christ to His church. It was the example Paul gave for wives in submitting to their husbands. It was the example that Paul used for husbands loving their wives. And of course, this is summarized in verse 31 and 32. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says. And look what he says. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The last direction that Paul gives to us, his church, is this. Submit to our lovingly, lovingly good leader, Jesus. Submit to Him. You may be single. You may be divorced. You may be engaged. You may be married. The call to us all is submit to our leader, Jesus. He loves us. Indeed, we have the opportunity to be reminded of who Jesus is. And I want to 
draw this out even though I've somewhat drawn it out already. We love Christ because He loved us. How in the world did Christ love us? Well, He committed Himself to us, to His church. You know, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how we've screwed up, no matter the gods that we bowed the knee to, God has committed Himself to us, to His church. Remember what Paul says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And what does he say? It is this that he, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and His church, not to husband and wife. He has committed Himself to His bride in sickness and in health. And so we must remember, church, that God is committed to us. He will never leave us or forsake us. We may have run after other gods, but He's still remaining faithful to us. He is our loving leader. We must remember that Christ is not only our loving leader, but that He is initiated with us. He has not waited for us to turn to Him. He has turned to us, even in our state of sin and brokenness and turning after other gods. He took on flesh and blood. And He went to the cross, not because we've done something good for Him, but because He knew He had to initiate forgiveness of sins for us. He initiated. And of course, He sacrificed for us. He sacrificed for us. He climbed on the cross willingly, There He is in the garden. Father, take this cup from Me. I don't want to go through this. But not My will, Yours be done. Willingly going to the cross. For who? His bride. For you. And for Me. And so in light of our lovingly leader, who has committed Himself and initiated and sacrificed Himself, what do we do as a church? We submit to Him. We allow Jesus to be our husband. Let Him lead us. Maybe you've never given your life to Him. Or said a different way, maybe you've never submitted your life to Jesus as Lord, leader, and lover. What a great time now to do that. There is no greater lover who has committed themselves to you no matter what it is you've done. There is no greater lover who will continue to initiate time and time and time again. You will run. He will follow. There is no greater lover than the one Jesus Christ who laid down His life for you in your sin, in your rebellion, than Jesus. Submit to Him. We must submit our lives to Jesus. In the summer of 2001, I was on my own for the first time. I had just started summer school at Florida State University in a town I was very unfamiliar with. One day after class, I I, I decided that I was going to go play golf, and so I checked my map. And mind you, this is before cell phones had maps on it. This is that day, that age, and some of you know this, some of you don't. So I checked my map, Felt confident enough in where I was going, and I headed to the golf course. I got to the golf course and enjoyed some time alone, playing a game that I loved so much. And when my round was over, I got back in my car, and I thought I knew where I was going. Confidently, I set out, but unknowingly, I made a wrong turn. 
and I found myself making one wrong turn after another. As I drove and as I drove and as I drove, panic began to set in in my own heart. And mind you, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that I know where I'm going. I'm pretty proud of the fact that I can tell you that's west, that's east, that's north, that's south. I got a good sense of direction. But here I was in Tallahassee, utterly lost, not knowing where I was, where I was going, or how to get home. I only had one thought as I drove. If I could find Tennessee Street, I think I could find my way home. It took a long time to find Tennessee Street. I'll never forget the moment I actually pulled up to Tennessee Street. The relief that set in in my heart. Oh, thank goodness. At least I can... Even, even if I go the wrong way on Tennessee Street, I know I can turn around and go back the right way. And the relief that set in. I tell this story because you can bank on this. In marriage and in life, you're going to get lost. And when you're lost, panic will inevitably set in. As it did for me that day in Tallahassee. But when this day comes, you must look for one thing. You must look to Jesus. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The church, submit your lives to Jesus. And you will find your way home. And you will find what a godly marriage looks like. No matter what type of marriage this is. Let me pray. Jesus, all I can say is thank You for the way that You have loved us and pursued us and how You have sacrificed for us. There is no greater love than the love that You demonstrated for us on the cross. For it is a love that was unworthy and given to us by grace. For we ran from You. We snubbed our noses at You. We hated You. Yet You loved us nevertheless. Oh Lord, would You give us uh, an experience of that love even today as we submit our lives to You. Knowing that You offer us forgiveness and righteousness when we submit our lives to You. And Lord, may this then permeate into our marriages where we submit to one another, love one another well. Help us, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.